there's only one snack that can make me feel like I'm having the true movie theater experience, and that's popcorn. When my mom and I hang in for a girl's night, we have to get our fix, and that's where Kelly's Killer Popcorn comes in. They're a small batch gourmet popcorn company, and believe me, one bite and you'll be hooked. Made in Austin, Texas, this family-owned business has tons of flavors. My mom loves their salted agave caramel, while I have a hard time picking between black pepper or dill pickle. Hmm, maybe I'll just mix the bags together. Oh, and when my dad and brother crash our girl's night, you know that spicy nacho popcorn is coming out. Every flavor is popped in 100% real butter and is whole grain and gluten-free. Which flavor will you be choosing? Head on over to kellyskillerpopcorn.com to indulge yourself in some scary good gourmet popcorn. And make sure to tag them on Instagram at kellyskillerpopcorn so that they can see what movie you're pairing with their flavors. That's kellyskillerpopcorn.com for American-made, small-batch, delicious popcorn. I might be vegetarian, but that doesn't mean I can't enjoy a good spice rub. My favorite place to get them is Smoked Bros, a veteran-owned and operated business that sells premium handcrafted dry rubs, spice blends, and seasonings. Guys, you can even put it on your popcorn. My favorites are Honey Badger, because he doesn't give a bleep, and Jelly and Peanut Flavor Topping, because mm, 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 some things just taste better together. The website even has recipes, so go check out smokedbros.com to support a veteran-owned and operated business and fill your cabinet with delicious flavor. On this episode of the Video Archives podcast, Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery look at one film and one film alone, Star 80. In 1980, Playboy Playmate of the Year Dorothy Stratton was murdered by her boyfriend Paul Snyder. Three years later, Bob Fosse's Star 80 was released, a sensational telling of the murder-suicide that hit too close to home for some. Roger and Quentin have a serious and personal discussion on differentiating fact from fiction, a tour de force performance by Eric Roberts, and how Dorothy Stratton touched the hearts of many with the silver screen. I'm Gala Avery, and joining us now, here's Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery. Thank you, Gala. Thanks, Gala. Welcome to the Video Archives podcast, Kill the Bakalov. Yes, this is the Video Archives podcast. I am Quentin Tarantino, and I'm sitting across, as per usual, with my partner and friend, Roger Roberts Avery. So happy to be here. And tonight, we're going to do a little different than we've done in our past episodes. Tonight, we're going to talk about one movie and one movie alone, and that is... Bob Fosse's Star 80 from 1983, starring Mariel Hemingway and Eric Roberts. I have this feeling about Dorothy. She's going to be a big star. They're going to give me $10,000 for having my picture taken. Dorothy is every man's fantasy. Sit down. Dorothy, you just can't let him do this to you. You want her, pal? You can have her. But you're going to have to pay... Star 80, rated R. Star 80 will be playing Thursday, November 10th at the New Beverly Cinema. 7165 Beverly Boulevard, Los Angeles, California, 90036. Visit thenewbev.com for more information. The New Beverly Cinema, always, and I mean always, on film. Always on film. Now, I, uh, I'm going to read the back of the box in just a second, but... um. Of all the films that we've done, especially the ones that I liked when it came out, and to 
review it again now after not having seen it for like probably a couple of decades. Mm -hmm. uh, this is one of the more interesting ones that I think we did, if not the most interesting one. This, you saw this, you saw Star 80 when it came out, didn't absolutely, you? Absolutely, yeah, mm -hmm. like everybody. And, uh, and as well, when we had it on video at Archives, you know, I, I seem to remember kind of pushing it. And then this movie almost feels like it mm -hmm. sits at the crossroads of everything. I, I, I agree too. No, this is, I'm always was working from the fact that even though the eighties was the time that I probably saw more movies in my life than ever, at least as far as going out to the movies was mm -hmm. concerned. You know, I do feel that 80s cinema is along with the fifties, the, the worst era in Hollywood history. Well, matched only by now. Well, <laughs> matched only by the current era. Uh, um, the good thing about being in a bad era of Hollywood cinema is the ones that don't conform, the ones that stand out from the pack. And they those are bigger. Yeah. And those movies that stand out from the pack, I literally call them archives classics. They were the ones that not even the critics per se were championing, but us movie mad uh, enthusiasts yeah. that we championed and, 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 and we held high. And Star 80 was definitely one of those, you know, part of the reason that I, wanted to see it when I was already interested in the Dorothy Stratton story because I was interested in Dorothy Stratton. I couldn't have been a bigger Eric Roberts fan at this time. Yeah. So I probably saw Star 80 about like three times yeah. at and the theaters. And then I probably watched it like a few times just on on this exact <laughs> home video. Uh, quite. A, I think I even bought, I think, in fact, this is one of the ones that I bought from the store when we started like, reducing our copies. Oh, I right. bought for like $10. <laughs> uh, so I had my own Star 80 for a while. Anyway, um, I'm going to read now the back of the box. It's a beautiful box. It's that Werner. Yeah, it's plastic a plastic clamshell. Actually, one of their best, actually, frankly, yeah. to tell you the truth. It starts off with the big head title. And remember, the, the Warner Brothers descriptions on the back actually are, are less plot descriptions than more like little essays on the film. But it starts off with the uh, tagline, she was every man's dream and one man's obsession. You spread open the pages of a magazine, and there she is, Dorothy Stratton, Playmate of the Year, the kind of girl men might dream about when they take a break from reality. But Paul Snyder was different. He didn't just dream about a girl like Dorothy. He found her, married her, helped her to become a star. And when Snyder lost track of the line between dream and reality, his obsession with Dorothy turned into a nightmare. Bob Fosse's Star 80 is a powerful, harrowing story of Stratton and Snyder. Based in part on Teresa Carpenter's Pulitzer Prize winning Village Voice article, Death of a Playmate, Star 80 takes us through the sexual looking glass into a world where fantasy is big business and a small time hustler can fool himself to death. Mariel Hemingway plays the key role of Dorothy in a delicately balanced performance that blends sensuality and innocence. Cliff Robertson appears as Hugh Hefner, overseeing an empire of temptation that calls forth the dark forces of Snyder's mind. And Carol Baker co-stars as Dorothy's mother, who tries to protect Dorothy from the lurid world which casts its spell over her. Yet, the true star of Star Radio, and boy, is that true, is Eric Roberts, his portrayal of Snyder is one of the most original, authentic, hypnotic performances. He takes us deep into the secret life of a born loser. In Robert's words, the type of character you may recognize wherever you go, but not necessarily get involved with. Robert's research into Strand's case also formed his judgment of her tragic flaw. This is dubious. Quote, obviously beautiful and sexy, she was nice, good, naive, an easy target for a man with the drive of Paul Snyder, end quote. 
Star 80 is a sad and savage film, an indictment that can't be ignored, and an experience that won't easily be forgotten. Then, tellingly, underneath that, in much, much, much smaller type, it reads... This motion picture is, in part, a fictionalization of certain events and people involved in the lives of Dorothy Stratton and Paul Snyder. Warner Brothers Home Video, Color, 104 Minutes, 1983, from the Lad Company, tape number 1632. In the drama section, under S. So tell me first what you thought about uh, uh, Star 80 uh back in the day when you saw it, and then maybe your uh, thoughts on it today. Okay, it's 1983. I'm, uh, I'm a senior in high school. Eric Roberts, who I was already aware of, he rep- like his character represents a kind of person that at that moment in my life was maybe like the worst kind of, like mm-hmm. visually the worst kind of guy, like a lizard in kind of silk shirts, you know, with the mustache and slicked hair and that, mm-hmm. and uh his whole demeanor. Like, I love this movie when I see it. Mm-hmm. What's weird about this film is it comes so soon after the actual events that occurred. I mean, this was, yeah. this had to be in production. To, oh like, my, like oh. literally af- the day after the murders happened. Well, it will. That's it, what it feels like. It went into production probably just uh, a few months after. Well, Teresa Carpenter's at, article came out. So I'm imagining they started shooting sometime in, uh, I think her article came out in, in 81. And I think uh, uh, they probably started shooting sometime yeah, in 82. Yeah, the video box is like got 83 copyrighted on it. So yeah. it's Well, like, it's definitely an 83 movie. It was, yeah. That was when it was released, yeah. And for sure, there is a kind of, trash quality to this movie. I mean, I, I was a Bob Fosse fan, even mm-hmm. like in high school, I was yeah. a, a specifically a cabaret mm-hmm. uh, fan. And so for me to, you know, a new Bob Fosse movie coming out, it's like, okay, I'm ready for it. And then for it to be this kind of almost TV movie mm-hmm. and yet so like deliciously lurid and smarmy and dirty. And, but it wasn't until I watched it again with you I mean, two things emerged for me. This is not a movie about Dorothy Stratton. Not at all. This is actually, it's a movie about Paul Snyder, mm-hmm. which I I didn't even quantify that when I was young. I, I We had this and we had the Dorothy Stratton story. Yeah, Death of a Centerfold with Jamie Lee Curtis. That's right. Death of a Centerfold with Jamie Lee Curtis. We had both of those um, at archives. And Lance was very, very particular. Like Lance was also really into mm-hmm. all this. But I remember- Well, he was also really into Dorothy Stratton. He was- Well, uh, he was really defensive and into Dorothy Stratton. And he was kind of like, he had issues with the movie. No, it was actually really interesting because I was, you know, I was such a Dorothy Stratton fan because uh, I've been rereading uh, a lot of the press that uh, focused on the film, especially the reviews. And I think I read, as I'm reading these reviews, I'm remembering reading them in 83 when they came out. And so the whole discussion about the propriety or is this exploitation or uh, is, is it morally corrupt that Bob Fosse is telling the story from... Paul Snyder's point of view, as opposed to the victim's point of view, was not lost on me because it was discussed a lot. I just didn't take that seriously back then. I just thought it was a terrific movie. Yeah. That's how I approached it. I approached it as a movie, not as reality, but as just a a lurid movie. Uh, A fun lurid movie, like a delicious performance, an over-the-top 
performance that we would see again yeah. hit him give in uh for me for, for the and other marker for me yeah, is yeah. well that but mm-hmm. a runaway train yeah yes that, for me yeah. as you know that like it's for me these two mm-hmm. characters mm-hmm. are some of the most quotable like <laughs> yeah. performance deliveries you know that he gives and, and you quote them ad nauseum i <laughs> love quoting them because it's so no, but- it's Eric Roberts, particularly, no more than any other actor. You seem to I vibe uh, in on that. Pair <laughs> it into an Eric Roberts vibe that hey, hey, always man. goes on too long. Hey, Manny, I know punk. I know punk, Manny. I need some shoes, Manny. I need some shoes. I need some, I need some socks. Give me fun socks. Give me fun some socks. Let me find some socks. Oh, yeah. Damn, I found me some socks. Like that performance he gives in Runaway Train. Uh, what she was nominated for an Oscar for, by the way. Yeah, is so. In the performance, mm-hmm. it's Eric Roberts, sure. And yeah. it's on performance only Eric Roberts would and could give, I yeah. think. But he is so inside of that character mm-hmm. in that moment. Like mm-hmm. whenever I try to ape him and mm-hmm. pretend to do it, the only way to do it is to kind of go into that mental place, yeah. which is that character. Mm-hmm. And it's a weird fucking place to go mentally, like <laughs> performance wise. Well, back then, I look, I just saw it as a pretty snazzy, entertaining, poppy movie galvanized by what I thought was a tour de force performance by Eric Roberts. That was not only what I thought was a great performance, but was, I'm positive, was actually my favorite performance of of that year. And I even remember to the degree that to me, it was a shoe in that Roberts would be nominated for a best actor, but I thought he was going to win. I thought, well, if he gets nominated, he, he he will win. And he didn't even get nominated. And I actually thought it was like the biggest crime of all the Academy non-nominations of the 80s at that year was Roberts being ignored uh, for Star 80. Because the character was so despised. The, the guy, the actual, like, this is where I come to on this film. Because it really is like, how does one judge this movie? Do you judge it as a movie, as a work of, as they describe in the box, in part fictionalized or do you describe it as reality? Cause it's not reality. The whole thing about um, Eric Roberts's performance when I watched it this time is as I was watching it this time, I was thinking he's right. He's right. Everything he does is right and correct. Like there's so many of things that happens when the sister comes down, it's, you know, he gave her toilet water. He gave her eau de toilet, which is mm-hmm. like, he gave her some Chanel. Mm-hmm. So she would have expensive smelling perfume when she went to LA. Mm-hmm. When he gets to LA, he's like, you got to remember people's names. You got He's mm-hmm. like behaving like a manager. And everything that he says, even when they're in the car and he's like, you're going to get a Mercedes. You're going to get a Mercedes. You know what? Mm-hmm. I'm going to be the guy that ends up buying it for you. <laughs> and he does, but he buys it with her money. <laughs> he buys it with her money, but <laughs> he's the one who got it for her. He's definitely the reason she got $10,000 because yeah. uh, that's what, what's what the playmates he, were paid. He coached her on her pictures on how to do it. Even when the mother is giving him flack mm-hmm. and giving him pushback, he starts giving an argument. Okay, I'm thinking I'm a dad. I have a daughter who's sitting here next to me right now. If Eric mm-hmm. Roberts came into my home mm-hmm. and tried to pitch me on uh, my daughter doing Playboy, mm-hmm. would he be successful? Okay, no is the answer to that. However- mm-hmm. He gives a good enough argument that it actually works within the frame of the movie. Well, it, he says, well, you know who listen like well, the, it is, it who, is, you know who reads Playboy? It is movie inter- directors, and he's right. Well, it, well, he's <laughs> sports sort, actors. He's, Peter Bogdanovich reads Playboy. He's sort of right. He's sort of right. Well, All right, he's uh, right. Uh, he's right enough to take her completely to the next level. I guess what I'm getting at is mm-hmm. that Fosse is not just sympathetic to him. Everything in the movie. Up until the point where 
I mean, maybe that Mercedes moment where he's buying it with her money, mm-hmm. because at that point she's being coached. Normally, the uh, the old, Dorothy Stratton, without the influence of the Peter Bogdanovich character and and uh, the Hefner character, would probably be happy if he went out and bought that Mercedes. Yeah, baby, go buy a Mercedes. Mm-hmm. She, but by that point, she was already poisoned by them, mm-hmm. poisoned to get away from him. They, another pimp has come in and hijacked this pimp's Okay, woman. okay, I don't, okay. That's what Fosse is, I'm not oh, saying that's that a, that's reality. I don't think that that's necessarily where Fosse is coming from when it comes to the cipher character of the director that's supposed to be a stand-in for Peter Bogdan. I mean, well, he's a non-character. It's almost, it's... It's almost comedy how he's not a character. Well, the fact, right, the, fact uh, that, the fact that it is Dorothy Stratton. But, but, but my point, though, is, and this was Teresa Carpenter's point. The woman who wrote the article. Who wrote the article. Uh, she makes a definitive case that, that Bossy leaps on is that there is a duality between the small-time sleaze merchant of Paul Snyder and the big-time sleaze merchant of Hugh Hefner. And that they're pretty much just uh, small-time, big-time versions of the same reflection. They're both pimps. Yeah, I don't quite buy that, but it's a very interesting sociological uh, uh, case to be made. And frankly, I think it's one of the better things about Fosse's film is, is, is drawing that conclusion. It's one of the things that he has to say other than getting to the in- inevitable murder. I think one of the reasons, though, back at the time why it was very easy for me to... To not invest in the reality of the movie and yes. just enjoy it, all right, as this poppy, snazzy, Scorsese-esque sleaze festival with this De Niro-ish performance sitting at the middle of a misanthropic, you know, becomes ultimately psychopath. That's a really good way of describing this movie. I actually was very, 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 very familiar with Dorothy Stratton. I knew what she looked. We we have a Playmate of the Year copy on the table here just so we don't lose sight of who we're talking this about. This is a real person. Right. This, this is a real person. I was very familiar with her and and was really connected to her to her character and the screen persona that um, Bogdanovich presented and they all laughed. And I, I I even saw Galaxina at the theaters. Oh, I love Galaxina yeah. with that great Frazetta poster. Yeah, yeah. Meryl Hemingway tries really hard, but she doesn't even remotely capture Dorothy Stratton's essence or the things that made her special. There's actually, she had a quality and I've watched, uh, and I'm not talking about just in, in, in they all laughed. They dramatize in the movie, a big, uh, a roller disco party that they have mm-hmm. at the uh, playboy mansion. Well, that was part of a TV special that they did on ABC TV and you can watch it on YouTube. And it's like the, uh, playboy mansion, pajama party and roller disco party. And uh, with like a bunch of guests of like uh, <laughs> this funny moment where they, okay, they, uh, they've created a roller disco situation <laughs> on, uh, uh, on Hugh Hefner's um, tennis court. And he's there in his pajamas and his pipe. And um, Richard Dawson is acting sort of as master of ceremonies. And he has an interview with Hef. And he says, uh, well, do you ever use your tennis court as a tennis court? Oh, all the time I use it as a tennis court. No, every week, you know, uh, uh, Cosby, James Caan, <laughs> Jim Brown, they come by and, and, <laughs> the and, and, and play uh, tennis. You could not pick three male stars that have less a chivalrous reputation when it comes to dealing with females than those three. <laughs> but in there, Dorothy Stratton is all throughout 
that special. You see her constantly. And there's even is a section where the, the village people show up and they do a whole big number. And Dorothy comes out on stage and then like dances uh, with the cop. All right. As Young man. As a, no, no, they're not doing, they're doing something else. All right. They're doing a, a, one of their non-hits. Right. Uh, uh, but she comes out and she's like dancing with the cop. All right. As the village people are performing behind her and uh, you can't quite take your eyes off her. You know, she has a poise and frankly. Enigmatic quality. Yeah. And I don't, uh, um, I can't frankly see Mariel Hemingway going out there in front of the village people and dancing with the cop and having the same arresting quality. Now, the thing about, now, and this is not me shaming Mariel Hemingway for not being as pretty as Dorothy Stratton or being as special as Dorothy Stratton. It just is the reality when you're playing somebody that actually has a specific star quality. Sheila Benson, in her review, is one of the only two critics to make a point about the fact that Meryl Hemingway misses the mark. And what she wrote is, this was late 1980 and Stratton was 20 years old. After bits and minor roles in movies, Stratton had just finished They All Laughed for director Peter Bogdanovich. Even in a film full of beautiful women, which it would include uh, Audrey Hepburn, Stratton's luminosity, gentle loveliness, and faintly fave personality stood out. Stratton's singularity is only one of Star 80's problems. Although Mariel Hemingway makes a gallant stab at playing her and in careful recreations of Playboy photo style looks stunningly enticing, Stratton's unique quality eludes her, as it would elude anyone. That's what makes Stratton so memorable. Mm. And so there is this quality now when I watch it and a quality when I watched it then that I'm hearing the tabloid incidences of the story that I know being told, but she's never really Dorothy Stratton to me. They give her so few scenes. It's really funny. The only time they really allow Mariel Hemingway to take center stage is in their snazzy photo shoots. Mm-hmm. All right. Which is not her acting. Okay. Fat, snazzy photo it's shoots. Miming at best. Yeah. And, you know, snippets of... <laughs> coming out of her mouth insipid interviews that she's doing for the Playboy channel. More miming. But that, that, but that gives us a key because what's interesting about that is even though Dorothy Stratton really only had about a year in the limelight, there's an incredible amount of footage on her because her entire time at the Playboy mansion was documented because they're always doing interviews and shooting stuff for the Playboy channel and uh, doing all these kind of specials. I mean, there's just a ton of, video footage of Dorothy Stratton. Yeah, we watched a little bit. And we watched a little bit. You showed me some of it. And so the pieces of interviews that Mariel Hemingway does, you can find online. You can find Dorothy Stratton doing those pieces. And one of the more famous ones is she's uh, talking about how she's not really about sexuality. She likes romanticism. And then the, the interviewer tries to be provocative. But what if I told you to take off your clothes right now? And then she just, oh, I wouldn't do that. Well, why not? Because it's not romantic. Now, yeah, the movie and the reality. Well, when you watch, conflict in an well, interesting you, way. Yeah, well, I, you see Meryl Hemingway saying the exact same lines, and it just kind of comes across as you know she's just a young, naive, regular girl, and she's just embarrassed by the question, and she answers it like a like shy, like naive. A, yeah, like a sweet, naive girl. I mean, that's pretty much the, the Stratton we yeah. get from 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 Fosse's movie. As, as if as if in her heart she's so naive that genuinely that's all you know what she. There's yeah. a romance. I just want romance. But when you watch. 
Dorothy Stratton say the exact same lines in the video, you're kind of struck by her poise. She's she savvy. Has a, she She's has a, savvy. She has a poise that just completely eludes Mariel Hemingway. And Mariel Hemingway is is doing her best. I, I, it's not her fault. It's a complete misconception of character. But Dorothy Stratton has a poise when she says that. And dare I say a depth to what she says and how she says it that is just turned into homilies by the movie Star 80. You had kind of brought it up and then you showed me that documentary mm-hmm. where there were a number of interviews. Yeah. And I was struck by how Muriel Hemingway's characterization was like really naive and really kind of was nothing more than malleable putty mm-hmm. in the hands of whatever man mouthing whatever words that they told her and that she was naive almost unchanging throughout the entire movie. Mm-hmm. But the Dorothy Stratton I saw in real life yeah. in those documentaries was a Dorothy Stratton who knew what the fuck was going down, who understood the business, who was savvy, smart, sharp, and is doing a comeback with that line, mm-hmm. with that, uh, yeah. well, it's not that wouldn't be romantic. That's a pont contrapont moment mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. her. In the movie, it's more just, it's pure naivete. It's Yeah, it's, and frankly- that's all the movie can ever offer up when it comes yeah, she to- is liter- It's no more real than this picture on the cover of the box. That yeah. is the- she, Dorothy Stratton in the movie never really truly graduates from the girl who's behind the counter of the uh, Dairy Queen in Vancouver at the beginning of the film. She stands up straighter. She is glammed up. She knows how to do her makeup better. She, uh, she Her hair is, is, is fashioned more, but she's- pretty much just that. She's 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 never more than that. And that is almost meant to be Fosse means that lovingly that she is just an innocent and it's her and her nevete and her innocence is what's defiled at the end of this. But as a lot of people have pointed out by coming up with such a narrow conception of the Dorothy Stratton character, he concedes all dramatic weight to Paul Snyder. Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, it's Roger. And before we talk more about Star 80, I want to take a second to let you know that we've got new merch in our store. Taking your holiday wishes into consideration, we've stocked our shelves with all the perfect gifts to check off anyone's wish list. Even the most curmudgeonly cinephile will find joy when they unwrap Scarface's favorite pop socket in their stocking. Not only do we have hoodies and girls' tees, Finally. But we've got shot glasses so you and your friends can make a game out of the podcast. 40-ounce water bottles so you can stay hydrated while listening to us on your daily commute. And is that a limited edition Season 1 Video Archives holiday sweatshirt I see? Perfect if you want to be the most stylish person at your office's annual ugly sweater party. So head on over to podswag.com to check out our latest merch drop. The link to our store can also be found at our website, videoarchivespodcast.com. 
Be sure to tag us in any pictures of you and your merch for a chance to be featured in an upcoming Countertalk newsletter. Thanks. Now, back to Star 80. What's, to me, gobsmacking about the movie, in a way it wasn't in 83, is the fucking balls of Fosse to tell the story, a true story of a murdered woman that only happened a, a few two, year, two years earlier, yeah. telling that story from the killer's point of view. And admitting that this is a half false narrative up front. Yeah. And, and, and frankly, it's not actually that half false. It's actually a pretty simple story and every version of it, whether it be Teresa Carpenter's version, whether it be uh, the uh, Jamie Lee Curtis TV movie version, whether it be Star 80s version, or whether it be anybody else writing an article, they're going to get the basic facts right because the basic facts are fairly simple. But that allows everybody to have their own perception of it, their own critique of it, their own uh, uh, subtextual reading of what's going on. By showing us photo sessions that we that we know straight from the Playboy and from mm. TV shows and all these yeah. like moments of reality that we are familiar with, to flash those in front of us and then to say this is true and then to do a, as they describe on the back of this, uh, a partly true fictionalization. It, I mean, well, it, well, it is a strategic weaponized well, usage okay, that, of okay. imagery to program into our heads, uh, true, true, true. And then suddenly we're shown things that are half, 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 not even half true. Look, I disagree with that. I have weird feelings about the movie. But look, I disagree with that because actually the facts of the case are so specific that they're easy to get right. Sure. Everybody tells the story more or less how it happened. But what? now and when it's just open up to the interpretation of what you give the characters and a subtextual reading, that's where they all differ. You know, but frankly, when it comes to the facts of the case, Teresa Carpenter, Fosse, and Bogdanovich in his book all tell the exact same story. The exact same story. But they all come up with different conclusions. And I think, okay, like for instance, Teresa Carpenter's article, who actually... She starts the boat on ignoring Stratton. She is not that interested in Dorothy Stratton as either a character in her article or as a human being. She, like Fosse, is attracted dramatically to Snyder. And she tells the story, but her version of the story is basically, here was this little dummy mm -hmm. from Vancouver behind a counter of, of a Dairy Queen that's met by a sleazy promoter who specializes in the bottom rung of entertainment, you know, wet t-shirt contest, uh, uh, Chippendales kind of like dancers, uh, you know, all, you know, all you know, buying out the bar for the night and, and doing some wild show. She's found by this guy who sees dreams in her that she doesn't see mm -hmm. and builds her up to be this object of desire. And then... She goes from that to Playboy magazine where she meets Hefner, who is another mentor who sees in her things that she does not see herself and lifts her up and presents her in his own image of an object of desire. Then she's met by Peter Bogdanovich, a director who sees in her things that she does not see in herself and molds her into his version of an object of desire. Now, I think it must be pointed out that his version of an object of desire is a love object as opposed to a sex object because he was in love with her. And I am assumed very much that Dorothy Stratton was in love with him. So that is Carpenter's argument. 
that these this young woman who, as far as the way Carpenter writes her, doesn't have a brain in her head, is manipulated by these three master manipulators that start on the lowest end and work their way up to the highest end. But they all, but all in this course of this one year of her short life, they are the ones pulling the strings and and creating the image. Fosse's version, let's Bogdanovich off the hook because he can't put him on the hook because he's not uh, because he's not allowed to use the character because Bogdanovich won't let him. But I also I don't think he actually sees Bogdanovich as as important to the story, uh, other than the fact that it was their uh, affair that prompted Snyder to kill her. So he's just there as a, as a motivation. But he sees a lot of metaphorical hay to draw between Snyder and Hefner. Then in Bogdanovich's version of the story, in Death of a Unicorn, he goes in the opposite direction, where he blames Hefner for the whole fucking thing. I mean, to the point that he takes Snyder off the hook, and that basically Snyder is simply reaping what Hefner sowed. He he looks at the entire situation. He takes no blame of himself for having an affair with a married woman that prompted her husband to murder her. But then he removes the guilt from Snyder and places it all on Hefner, which is fucking ridiculous. Well, I I would posit that maybe Fosse doesn't let him off the hook as much as um, you suggest, Bogdanovich specifically. I think- Well, he doesn't do Bogdanovich specifically. Well, he has a director stand-in that is as opposite of Bogdanovich as you can possibly be. Well, yeah, he's like <laughs> that guy, that British. Yes, yeah, Roger Rees, who played Nicholas Nickleby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's odd. There's three people in this movie that are real: Hugh Hefner, Dorothy Stratton, Paul Snyder. Mm-hmm. The mother is a is a the mother is a is cipher a, is a fake a cipher. The little sister is a cipher, even though she does the things. They don't give her the same name, right. all right? Uh, of Louise, all right? They give her Eileen. However, the evidence that Fosse kind of gives that this is sort of a world of pimps and consumers, Mm -hmm. but especially people obsessed with imagery. The very end, when during the murder sequence, when Eric Roberts uh, supposedly puts her onto his sex contraption, during that kind of oblique um, sodomizing moment or sex moment, necrophilic moment, he cuts to three images. The first image is Hugh Hefner looking through a loop, you know, mm-hmm. like a little magnifying glass at uh, negatives of the next playmate. Yeah, yeah. He he show he, he shows the next the- images of the daughter, mm-hmm. her sister, her younger sister, glued to a television. I think during breakfast or something mm-hmm. in the kitchen, just glued to television. He's showing the different people in her life yeah. just carrying on their normal Correct. day well, and their normal instances while she's being murdered. Yeah, but it's more simultaneously. Than that. It's, they are consuming weaponized media mm-hmm. in, in all of those moments. And the last one is of Bogdanovich glued to his his chem, hypnotized by his chem. And he's not hypnotized by a close. I thought this was very specific. You're talking very metaphorically. Well, too, no, I'm right. talking about the language of cinema and uh-huh. what Fosse, who is a cinema artist, did in the very end. And the final image, it's not of Dorothy Stratton in a close-up. It mm-hmm. is of a hallway mm-hmm. with Dorothy Stratton at the end of the hallway, almost in silhouette. And he is staring at that fucking image, going back and forth on the chem, shuttling it back and forth on the chem, staring at it like he's hypnotized. And it's this long shot. And I think that's on purpose. Fosse mm-hmm. is making a very specific point about 
the Bogdanovich character or the the director character, we can call it, mm-hmm. and all the other people and what our obsessions are and the casualties of our obsessions mm-hmm. that we don't even care about as consumers of mass media. We talked about Lance in earlier episodes and the owner of Video Archives. The owner of Video Archives. And there was a very interesting thing that happened after I read uh, Death of Unicorn. Uh, I was a big Peter Bogdanovich fan, big fan of Dorothy Strand, and I got the book and I read it. And so did Lance. It's very well written. Uh, I read Bogdanovich's book and I bought his whole hypotheses hook, line, and sinker. And uh, started talking about it with Lance one day while we were uh, working at the store. And he completely shut me down in a very interesting way. He was like, my God, Quentin, I can't believe you bought that bullshit. Lance knew. Yeah. And I go, what, 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 what do you mean? You know, he basically said, like, I believe Peter Bogdanovich wrote this and had to write it, had to get it out of his system, but he should never have published it because it's, it's, it's cockamamie bullshit. He blames the entire thing on Hefter, takes no responsibility for actually having an illicit affair with a married woman that her husband finds out and then blows her away and then kills himself. There would be some guilt involved in that. And he deflects it. And frankly, when Lance described it to me that way, there is an aspect that Lance kind of taught me a stronger dose of critical thinking than I had actually experienced up to that time in my 20s. Because uh, Bogdanovich, you know, he's a good writer. He makes a compelling argument in the book. storyteller. And I liked him. And so I just bought it. And Lance shined a light on it. I think what happens with Star 80 is it becomes something else where it's a story of, of Dorothy's manipulation by four men. Snyder, Hefner, the Bogdanovich character, and Fosse himself. Mm. And he, he fashions his version of Dorothy, which is convenient to tell for his interest in Snyder's character. Which is his primary objective. Who he presents rather sympathetically. Fully sympathetically. That's actually my note. Fully sympathetic. Presents an uncomplicated version of Dorothy to stand in for herself, but it just betrays his criminal lack of curiosity of who Dorothy Stratton is. The moral corruptness that is woven into the fabric of Star 80 is not just due to Fosse's lack of interest in Dorothy Stratton, is he just doesn't care. Meryl Hemingway for his purposes, is good enough. She actually sells this airhead from Canada uh, uh, who is manipulated by all these guys. He, you know, she sells his hypotheses. It's, it's bizarre that he identifies to such a degree with Snyder. I, I'm not going to say that he makes... Snyder sympathetic. I think Fosse is sympathetic to Snyder. I don't think we find Snyder sympathetic, but he does such a good job of of drawing the character out that we do find him understandable. We understand why he does what he does. It's very interesting because in the case of a a, a film that I actually think is almost um, 
as a symbiotic relationship to Star 80 is Richard Brooks's Looking for Mr. Goodbar. Diane Keaton plays a woman uh, named Teresa, who's a teacher of deaf children in, in New York at the height of the single bar craze. And she's uh, uh, you know, just having a, a lot of sex with a lot of different guys in these one night stands until eventually she picks up the wrong guy and is murdered. She's heading towards that death date and that knife blade by Tom Berenger, the whole movie. Yeah. The, the whole movie is how she got, got there. It's Step inevitable. by step, every man she ever knew, everything that ever happened in her life brings her closer and closer to that meeting of her ultimate fate. In Star 80, Fosse does a similar thing, except he describes step by step, inch by inch, encounter by encounter, what led Paul Snyder to blow her head off. Yeah. I actually think Star 80 may have prompted some of the best film writing of the 80s. By back of the time when there was actually some real heavyweights that were writing about cinema. And this is something everybody would be passionate about, too. It's, mm-hmm. it's Hollywood. It's an indictment on celebrity and media. It's sort of a seesaw. The way people felt about the film, the big critics, it's fairly equal as far as like the ones who liked it and the ones who indicted it. However, the ones who indicted it, indicted it with much more passion and fervor. And I actually think we're actually even more articulate. But like, for instance, okay, on one side, you have Roger Ebert, who considered it a very important movie, acknowledges the sleazy quality inherent in the subject. Well, he loved sleazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, um, and it's, uh, you know, well, the, the man who wrote Beyond the Valley of the Dolls is not going to point a finger at Fosse. Yeah. All right. Uh, um, <laughs> exactly. Richard Corliss of Time Magazine gives it an out-and-out rave. And from the way he uh, uh, ends the piece, from Cabaret to Lenny to all that jazz, Fosse has been rummaging through the junk heaps of our culture looking for artifacts to symbolize his bleak view of human nature. In the process, he has stripped away his self-indulgences and he emerges here as a masterly director in full possession of a terrible vision. Few people will like this film. But a few, one hopes, will see it for what it is, this year's most challenging and disturbing nightmare. But then now you go over to The Village Voice and Andrew Saris, in one I think is maybe one of Andrew Saris's best written pieces of, of his entire career, and that's saying a lot. He writes, Bob Fosse's Star 80, the end product of a very poisonous chic, is the work more of a vulture than an artist. Picking over the bones and blood-splattered flesh of two ill-fated wretches, Fosse has served up in one of the most glumly misogynist movies ever produced on this continent. The gruesome ending particularly is the biggest treat for women haters this side of the underground snuff circuit. Indeed, if Paul Snyder had merely blown away Playboy centerfold Dorothy Stratton with a shotgun and had not taken his own life in the process, Star 80 could have been used by his defense counsel for a plea for justifiable homicide. It is all in the way Fosse has chosen to tell this sordid story. And after making that bold statement, he goes further to describe it. And I think very good metaphor. With whom we might ask, are we supposed to sympathize in Star 80? After all, if the story of Little Red Riding Hood is told with the wolf in close-up and Little Red Riding Hood in long shot, the director is concerned primarily with the emotional problems of a wolf with a compulsion to eat little girls. If Little Red Riding Hood is in close-up and the wolf in long shot, the emphasis is shifted to the emotional problems of vestal virginity in a wicked world. That is a good metaphor. However... Like a wolf 
is out to kill the girl from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that Paul Snyder, even in real life, was set out, you know, was setting out to kill anybody. Yes, that's true. I actually think I, I actually think Paul Snyder did love her in his own way, but he couldn't make the distinction between selling her and exploiting her. He didn't realize that there was a line. <laughs> Well, there. she is no different than any of, it, it, I'm talking about the Fosse reality yeah, of, uh, you know, the, and I should probably not even use the name Paul Snyder. I should probably use the name Eric Roberts when describing inside mm -hmm. the movie. Mm -hmm. um, Eric Roberts has, his character has created all these things. At one mm -hmm. point, there's some fake flowers or something that he's made out of trash oh, yeah. uh -huh. or vinyl uh -huh. or something like that. And she's like, wow, what's this? It's like, it's beautiful. And he's like, oh yeah, it's just some fucking thing that I made. Like, I tried to sell it and it didn't sell. I didn't sell. And so it, he has contempt for those things that don't work out. Well, I, but they see that you're just bringing up another point though, all right, is the fact that Stratton has absolutely no interior life because Fosse has absolutely no interest in her interior life. However, he's fascinated by everything about Snyder. He sets the stage and again he's setting a stage that 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 uh, Teresa Carpenter already set yeah. in her piece that Snyder is a misunderstood talent that literally his biggest crime was trying to rise above his station if he had stayed just you know doing wet t-shirt nights in 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 bars or jello wrestling uh nights in bars or male stripper nights in bars i think one of the attractions of the film is Fosse being able to run around the lowest rungs of entertainment, but it's still showbiz. Oh no, he loves he loves to do that. No, but 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 to go back to your point though, yeah. you know he's always coming up with one. You know he has he actually has a, a one of his uh, Fosse's uh, interviewer characters post mortem. He's ah oh, Snyder was always coming up with some cockamamie idea. I always had some cockamamie get rich scheme idea. You see some of them, and actually. None of them sound cockamamie. They all sound based on something. Even the idea of, of, of finding those the, that weird metal flowers that he, that he fashioned. Okay, you know, again, that's him trying to do something. That's yeah. him. There is even this broken artistry in this well, these cheesy metal flowers and, and that he does that he's trying to he's trying to better himself. Well, that's part of what I want to get at is that everybody shits all over all of those achievements mm. as if they are lurid and low. But really, looked at in the perspective of 1980, mm -hmm. you know, wet t-shirt contests hadn't been done before. Mm -hmm. That was like something like, you know, this was the days before the octagon and wrestling, which, by the way, also started in Canada. Mm -hmm. This was something that like nobody was doing. Paul Snyder found it and said, this is a thing. Chippendales, which is the male stripping thing. Mm -hmm. He was the guy who started Chippendales. And the the and, he got, and, he got, and he got kicked out. And the various mobs, more than kicked out, he had his first taste that the world of entertainment is full of fucking mobsters mm -hmm. who will push you out, hold you over a balcony, mm -hmm. and cause you to vomit all over yourself. You know, mm -hmm. in, in the one scene that we kind of felt was the most false scene. Yeah, yeah. But the point of that scene is to basically show, like, he can't even get in with these ideas that are absolutely money-making ideas. They're either fucked up by by small timers mm -hmm. or preyed upon by unsavory characters. Well, again, though, but that's Fosse telling us how misunderstood Snyder is. I think that's yeah. the you have to look at this movie then mm -hmm. through the the lens that Paul Snyder is the uh, sympathetic character. I mean, I think that's the disturbing thing. It is a biopic of Paul Snyder. 
the movie doesn't have the balls itself to say it's about Paul Snyder. The poster has just Merrill Hemingway on the cover. There's no picture of Eric Roberts as Paul Snyder, even lurking in a yeah, you're right. in an ugly way. These are all elements to suggest that naturally the story of a slain woman is told from her point of view. However, everything that happens once the film starts makes that clearly a lie. And then in this interview with Bob Fosse in the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, he talks about how Peter Bogdanovich didn't like the idea that he was going to do Star 80 and, and got in touch with him and they had a conversation. Peter didn't like the idea of my filming the story. He said, I didn't know the true story, which was correct. But I pointed out that I was making a movie about Paul Snyder, not Peter Bogdanovich. He admits it. He just fucking admits it right there. He just fucking admits it in an interview tied to the release of the movie that he's making the movie about Paul Snyder. Now, here's my thing. This is where I think the corrupt morality of the movie takes place. Because Scorsese's oeuvre in general, but Taxi Driver in particular, casts a giant shadow over the whole film. Scorsese's filmmaking technique mm -hmm. in both Taxi Driver and Raging Bull are mimicked, completely mimicked yeah. by Fosse. And, uh, and he comes across as the older gent. He's not, he's not ad, as good at that whiz-bang sure. stuff as, as, as Scorsese is. The entire uh, De Niro oeuvre under Scorsese is brought into play with Paul Snyder to the point of a Rupert Pupkin mustache. Now, that is actually Paul Snyder's real mustache, but... But the resemblance to Rupert Pupkin is, cannot be ignored the entire movie. That's true. Paul Snyder is the greatest character Paul Schrader never wrote. Yeah. As if he was born completely from a, a, a Paul Schrader's id to such a degree that if Fosse hadn't made the Dorothy Stratton Paul Snyder story in 83, I wouldn't doubt Paul Schrader would have made the movie in the 90s. My problem with it is the fact that Paul Snyder is not a Paul Schrader character. He is a real human being. Fosse is not given the license that Scorsese has when he does Taxi Driver. In Taxi Driver, Scorsese looks at the world through Travis Bickle's eyes, and he is sympathetic in his portrayal of Travis Bickle while never endorsing what Travis Bickle does. He just... He's understandable. You understand why he does what he does. He's not quite the monster in a monster movie. It's how this uh, little lonely- He's created by the world. How this lonely little goofball becomes this malevolent, lethal character. And that's pretty much the same story that uh, uh, that Fosse's except giving. One except is the fact that he's a real person that actually had real consequences to real people makes it obscene. And I did not feel that way back then. I do feel that way now. Now, there are other things that add to my feelings. And part of them is the fact that I know some of the people involved. I never met Dorothy Stratton. Uh, that was even before I worked at Video Archives, but by the time she died. However, uh, Peter Bogdanovich just died recently when, uh, when this podcast is being heard. But I've been friends with Peter for over 20 years. I've been friends with Dorothy's sister, mm -hmm. uh, Louise uh, for just as long. We've been very, very good friends. I even know Dorothy's mother. You know, if I'm on a scale, that doesn't add a hundred pounds to the scale. All right. But maybe it adds 20 pounds. You have been touched by the actual reality. You're not some 
disconnected person who's sitting in a movie theater in uh, Transylvania yeah. watching the film. Mm-hmm. You're Quentin Tarantino, who you know intimately knows not just Bogdanovich, but the other people in his mm-hmm. life. As I mentioned before, Hefner had a lot of footage of Dorothy. I mean, just like in again, in only a, a year, you know, she was at the Playboy Mansion a lot, and they kept recording her for Playboy uh, for the Playboy Channel and for their little video cassettes. Remember when they used yeah. to have you know, the, the, the Playboy Volume One, Volume My Two, God. Volume yeah. Three? It, it was a huge. And they had a whole Dorothy Stratton. Uh, uh, they had a whole channel. Tradition. Yeah, they had a channel. Also. No, no, that's it. That's what I've been saying. Playboy <laughs> yeah. Channel, but they also even had their own like video magazine. Yeah. Um, I had a really interesting situation. It was about ten years ago. Louise, because of Peter, was estranged from Hefner. And then about 10 years ago, she reached out to Hefner. And Hefner was so happy that she did that he invited her to the Playboy Mansion. And she hadn't been there, you know, since she was a little girl. Uh, she didn't want to go alone. And Peter's not going to go with her to the Playboy Mansion. So, he, so she asked me to escort her. I escorted her there. And we had a really good time. And everyone just, all the people in Hefner's camp kept coming up and saying, you don't know how happy this makes him that you have reached out and that you're being warm towards him. It's a new lease on life. He's just so, so happy. Now, one of the things, though, that happened was, and it's been a long time since the murder, finally Hefner was putting together a, an, another thing for the Playboy channel, which was a special just about Dorothy. And he used it with all this footage that had never been seen before that was shot uh, during all the different times that she was in his orbit, in his sphere. And uh, he gave Louise the video to look at. And she actually came here to my house and me and her and a couple of her friends, we watched it together. And then the shocking part about it is the Playboy Playmate of the Year ceremony. Because she attends the ceremony with Paul Snyder. Mm. And you see her there at the ceremony and I'm telling you, the Dorothy that we see at the Playboy Playmate of the Year ceremony is not a Dorothy that is covered in any of these reviews, any of these articles, this movie, or any of the other fictions portrayed, even in Bogdanovich's fictions of her. We see a completely different Dorothy Stratton. One, she's completely over Snyder. She's repelled and putting up with him at the same time, but she's giving him the Heisman. Almost the entire time, even to the point there's one moment when he grabs her hand and she kind of pulls it away. She doesn't she doesn't want it. Well, you would expect that from the scenario that we've always heard around this time about Snyder. What's really, really fascinating is she's doing, I believe she I think she's already shot Galaxina and she's probably either doing uh, uh, They All Laughed or has just done They All Laughed. What's surprising is she's over Playboy too. Mm. You see that. She has no problem with Playboy. She has no problem with Hefner. She's happy to be Playmate of the Year because she won it and she gets $100,000. And she's very grateful for everything that Playboy did to put her in the situation that it did but she's over it. It seems to be as if this is Stratton's exit from both Paul Snyder and Playboy itself. She's over it. That speech is is her goodbye to Playboy. That person has never been dramatized in any of these stories at all. I mean, I it was actually it took my breath away to see such a strong 
Dorothy Stratton with such an interior life. I want to bring up another movie that we talked about briefly. It's one of my favorite films that I was thinking about when we watched this movie. Mm -hmm. And that was the Alex Cox film, Sid and Nancy. Oh, yeah. Uh Which is about um, Sid Vicious and Nancy Spungen. He was in the Sex Pistols and... They famously like flamed out on tour and the two of them got on heroin and the theme of the movie was Love Kills. And this was made, Mm -hmm. this movie was made very soon after their deaths, very similar to this movie, to the point where, you know, the people who were there at those concerts remember what it was like. And you could look at the movie and say, hey, Sid Vicious, like this is a very good mime of Sid Vicious, but- there's things that are wrong. Like, for example, Sid Vicious, like to push buttons, he would not have been wearing a hammer and sickle mm-hmm. shirt. For example, mm-hmm. it would have been a swastika because mm-hmm. he would have wanted to push those fucking buttons yeah, yeah. with people. Not that he was a fascist. He's the opposite No, of just that. to be a- But just provo- to be a, Provocateur. Just to be a provocateur, a punk. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the movie made little changes like that. Well, one of the things that happened in real life in Sid and Nancy was very likely- What all evidence shows is that toward the end uh, of their life, when they were living in that hotel in New York, the Chelsea Hotel, a drug dealer came by, got into an argument with Nancy while Sid was passed out or drunk and stabbed her and killed her. Mm -hmm. That's from all accounts what happened. But while making the movie, they changed it. And it becomes more of like a, a Greek tragedy where they're so in love that she throws herself onto the knife that he's holding in the middle of an argument. Mm-hmm. And the drug dealer is actually like played like almost sympathetically, you mm-hmm. know, like as a- just, Michael Winka, yeah. Yeah, I left a lot of money around here. Is there any money? Oh. <laughs> I left some money somewhere. And like, he's not culpable at all for what, you know, what happened. However, Gary Oldman said, over the course of making the movie, we discovered a truth greater than the reality of what happened. Mm -hmm. An emotional truth is what he was talking about. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying that that's what happened here, Mm -hmm. but what it did was it shows that artistic license when making a movie goes sometimes beyond the reality of what happened. And I think you probably know this better than most people, Mm -hmm. having made uh, Inglorious Bastards with its uh, dicking with history Mm -hmm. and... Mm -hmm. uh, more recently, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I I, inter- I look at both of those movies as movies about how movies can save the future. Movies can save the world. And, and so your reinterpretations of reality, I understand where they're coming from. They're coming from a place where this is my reality. This is the reality that you walked through in your head to get to this place. And you and, and I know how much work you put into the background, the background background mm-hmm. character people. And how much you think all of that through. And it becomes a fully formulated reality separate from our own. Now, Fosse obviously has things that he needs to say. And I think he, he's not talking about Dorothy Stratton or Paul Snyder or Hugh Hefter. I think he's talking about media and media consumption. You mentioned showbiz from the very bottom where it's, you know, uh, jello wrestling mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know, at the and uh, and porn. The Tropicana in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, basically at the bottom, all the way to the very top. And, you know, the Academy Award winning films that get made that are supposedly so legit. Mm-hmm. But we, you and I both know how sleazy the world of all entertainment is. So I look at this movie as Fosse approaching... And taking great license with, mm-hmm. you know, with real characters and real events and real people. 
and attempting to make what I think he thinks is... uh, um, Well, he's making a sociological statement. A sociological statement. And I actually think in many ways, though he is absolutely disinterested and maybe doesn't even understand Dorothy Stratton, like that's not the story he's trying to tell. He's not trying to tell that story. In Andrew Saris's indictment review, Andrew Saris writes, there is a theory that Fosse was drawn to this project initially because of the emotional resemblance of the Snyder... Stratton relationship to his own stormy life and marriage with a dazzling Gwen Verdon, mm. whose luscious legs inflame the libidos of a generation of theater goers n- no mere centerfold ever has. Fosse's subsequent reputation on Broadway and in Hollywood as a genius never entirely erased the memories, at least according to this theory, of his own comparatively wimpish persona as an actor-dancer on the stage and screen. Drawing on his own feelings in this situation, Fosse tipped what little dramatic weight there was in the script toward Snyder and away from Stratton. The trouble is that Fosse and Roberts have made Snyder too monotonously odious to warrant such attention. You know, I've, I've adapted a lot of uh, material, like you. I've adapted a lot of material over my life. I've adapted- I've uh, only done that once. Other You've done movies. It a lot. Oh, yeah. That's right. Uh, video games, biographies of mm-hmm. people. And the one thing I've learned is that, uh, especially with the biography- there is no way of telling the truth of someone else. Oh, yeah. You can only tell the truth about yourself mm-hmm. because then it's real. You know it's real if you're telling that. If you if you as a filmmaker bring the, the truth of yourself to the material, truth is truth. It'll live within the film. It may not be the reality of what happened, but you're really making a movie about yourself when you do a biography. And Fosse's making a movie about himself. One of the things that's also odd about Eric Roberts' performance, and what's odd about it is that it works, is it's practically a comedic performance. Oh my God, it's it's hilarious. The first half of the movie, you pretty much almost laugh at every other line Eric Roberts has. It's one of the things that makes him so sympathetic. It, it, this is actually the shrewdest part of, 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 of Fosse's interpretation is because he does not make... Uh, yeah. Yes, you're right on about that. He do, It's not so much that he makes Snyder sympathetic. We don't want to be Snyder, all right? Um, we understand him. But by the fact that he's got us to laugh so much yeah. at Snyder, we can't help but feel just a little bit of affection for him like you feel affection for characters that make you laugh in a film. Now... In the second half of the movie, once Schneider co- Snyder, when Snyder comes to Los Angeles, after the terrific opening scene when he shows up at the Playboy Mansion uh, and he has that wonderful encounter with Hefner, which is one of the best scenes in the whole movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, All of his encounters with Hefner are really yeah. compelling. All of a sudden, I started feeling that the performance was getting to one note. But the thing is, I don't actually think it's the performance that's getting one note. It's the movie. That's become one note. And now once Snyder is in Los Angeles and we know that the murder is going to be intimate within the next 40 minutes, now it's not so fucking funny. And now he's not so fucking funny. Yeah. And now we're waiting. Now we're just sitting here waiting for the biographical details to play themselves out to see the dramatization of the murder. And And this inevitability of this narrative device Mm -hmm. where we all know what's going to happen at the end of this movie. And Eric Roberts starts getting quite tiring before that murder sequence with his constant ranting and raving, you know, of, uh, uh, okay, 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 you want her, you got her, but now you're going to have to pay, motherfucker. You know, and all all these megalomaniac, uh, either his crying jags uh, Mm -hmm. or his uh, uh, volatile explosions. 
the thing that was actually, that probably grabbed me more than anything else in the whole film is when it gets to the actual murder. Yeah. When she finally shows up to the house and it's the, the whole movie's been built up to this. Now, everything Fosse includes in the movie, n- no matter his point of view, is all fairly well documented. I mean, even the things that we say we don't like in Mariel Hemingway's portrayal are all actual text that Dorothy Stratton actually said. Yeah. So most of the things that happen, the events in the movie happen, are actually well documented. But nobody knows what happened between the two of them. So now now that's left for Fosse to tell the story. And it has that dazzling cut to the two of them sitting in director's chairs across from each other with that giant glossy photo of Dorothy Stratton in the middle. I mean, it's almost too set up, but you can't begrudge it because it's just, it's kind of a dazzling shot. And it's even wild having a dazzling shot as it gets down to the nitty grittiness. Yeah, well, it also of, just shows how her image, mm-hmm. the imagery that he's indicting is blown up so big, it mm-hmm. overwhelms and consumes both of them. They're both sitting inside of this photograph. Yeah. Yes. Right here. And so when you when it cuts to that and that scene starts, I was sort of like, okay, Forget about the misgivings I had in the past. Now watching this sequence with these new eyes, Fosse could redeem himself depending on how this goes because he is the one supplying all the words. He is the one who's supplying how Stratton reacts and how uh, Snyder reacts. But the way he starts the scene with a humble Paul Snyder sitting across for her, knowing that he's lost her forever. And she's never looked more sophisticated and he never looked more like a twerp than in that shot. And he realizes that he's lost her for good. Knowing what's going to happen, your heart goes out to him. But I think part of the reason that for the first time, my heart truly went out to him, and I think this is an important point. I think at the beginning of that scene, not all the way to the end, but the, at least the first half of the scene, it's the only scene in the movie told from Dorothy's perspective. It's the only time we're looking at the movie from Dorothy's eyes. Because at that point, the only reason when we know he's going to murder her that we can feel sympathy towards him is because we're Dorothy, yeah. who does not know she's going to die, and she sees sympathy. Yeah, quite suddenly we're sitting with, we're with Dorothy, she's on her day. Yeah. She's going about her day. You even, There's moments that could carry her away. Oh, you shouldn't go over there or, or yeah. you should. Like all the little tiny moments where well, she could have turned it's back. Just, it's, she was about to leave the door yeah. and she hears him cock the gun. She could have just left right there. No, no, no. Well, that's a very, that's a very important part in the scene, actually. But, the, you know, uh, um, for a while, Fosse does an absolutely wonderful job showing Snyder's patheticness and then that spins into his volatile nature. And Dorothy's humanity, she feels sorry for him. She wants to let him down as easily as possible. Yet at the same time, she parrots things that are obviously not her own words. These are, uh, you know, when- She's obviously been remolded. I think we need to take a clean break. These are obviously uh, uh, words that the, uh, the her director lover has told her or a lawyer has told her to say. And there's an- Or e- Hefner. Yeah, or- yeah, or, or one of Hefner's minions. Yes. But now one of the things that's really interesting, though, it's up to Fosse to 
to say how the murder happened. What what was if 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 he wasn't planning a murder from the very beginning, if it wasn't a premeditated murder, then events need to spiral out of control. What is going to be the inciting event that spirals Snyder out of control? Snyder is filled with all these, as as the movie says, cockamamie ideas that the movie also shows are maybe not so cockamamie about all of his get rich quick schemes. But the one idea involving Dorothy after submitting her for Playboy, the one idea that Snyder has that actually seems like a good idea is the idea of the Dorothy Stratton poster. Yeah. Especially when she's one Playmate of the Year. They keep making a point that at that time, posters of pretty girls were actually quite popular. They were. They, 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 you know, they Farrah make the, Fawcett. Well, they make the reference to the Farrah Fawcett poster. They don't make a reference to the Cheryl Teague's poster, but that was, that was also that was also very popular. That's mine. <laughs> and so that is actually a legitimate idea that he has. And not only is it a legitimate idea, it falls right into his billywhack. This is absolutely something he could do. He would actually yeah. do a good job with that. And then it's brought up throughout the movie. And throughout the movie, when it's brought up, Dorothy is always fairly positive about the idea. And not only that, this actually falls into an area where he can be the creative person. He can be the director. Because I actually believe that Paul Snyder would actually art direct a poster really well. If if the mobsters in his life wouldn't constantly squeeze him out mm-hmm. of everything, he would actually be yeah. a successful guy. And those posters the, are a good example the, of that. Yeah, this is the most legit thing he's talking about. And you believe that he would take the poster to, to its nth degree. And he keeps talking about it. Well, wait till I get it together. Wait till I get it together. No, I want it to be terrific. I want it to be wonderful. So, okay, it's over. She's not coming back. She's on. Okay, fine. But look, honey, I've got something I want to show you. And then he proudly comes out with what looks like a very good poster. Three. All right, three, yeah. three to choose from. Three good posters mounted on poster board. Yeah. And, you know, he presents it to her. And he's, and he's proud of it. And it actually he's looks nice. He's been working on this while she's away. Yeah. And, uh, but like, she's like, and go, whoa, what's the matter? What, is this too small time for you? And, you know, and then like, again, yeah, she, Parrots words that you think the that the director probably said to her or her lawyers probably told her. But look, I think we just need a, a clean break. Yeah, offer him half of what you've got, $7,000. Yeah, I think we just make a clean break. And that is what ultimately spirals him to the point of all is lost. I'm going to kill myself, which ends up leading to killing himself and her at, at, at the same time. All of that is done so well that I actually almost think Fosse almost redeems himself. However, he can't keep it up. I think the third act of that scene is kind of terrible. He does a thing that I've talked about before in my films about where you, you have a rubber band and you stretch and you stretch and you stretch the rubber band. And the more rubber there is to give in the band, the longer the tension. You can extrapolate the tension. However, Fosse misjudges it. And a, th- a third of the way before the sequence is over, the rubber band snaps. And now we're out of the film. And now we don't buy Eric Roberts' uh, uh, yo-yoing between being a pathetic wretch and being this volatile, uh, 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 dangerous guy. You don't buy it. After the abuse he lays on Dorothy, when Dorothy 
sheds all her clothes to offer herself to Snyder one more time. I understand the thought process behind it. And if things were different, I can imagine maybe that happening. A lot of people, when it's the final moment, they have one last thing of sex. But you can also even imagine Dorothy offering herself to to save Snyder, to comfort Snyder, to to console Snyder, but not the guy who's in the fucking room. Like, oh, you're going to do me such a big fucking favor. I mean, like, what kind of person is just going to keep lying there and be fucked by this raging asshole who has actually, by this point in time, has terrified her three different times during the scene? Posse makes a big point about the idea that there's a moment where Dorothy could leave. She has the keys and several she, moments. But she, yeah, there's but, but, one. But, but there's one, one moment one in particular. Big, big, he her ha- hand is on the doorknob. He has left the room. She has the keys. She could leave. She hears the shotgun. Cocking. Cocking. And she's not afraid for herself. She rightly thinks that Snyder is going to kill himself. And her compassion for him draws her to the room and takes the shotgun away. I buy that. I'll go with that. I just don't buy everything that happens almost from that point on. The minute he starts getting completely abusive and has scared her violently three different times, now she takes her clothes off and presents herself to him. That's just full of shit. Not only that, after the whole movie is about setting up how these murders happen, when he eventually does put the barrel of the shotgun against her face, it almost has, it seems to come out of nowhere. It happens just because we all know what happened. It, it's, it's, it's not blown out of, uh, out, out, out of one incident. And then at the way the movie ends, well, it's not the way the movie ends, but the way Snyder ends, basically, is after he's done it, he puts the barrel to his head, <laughs> okay, leans over it and says, oh, you're never going to forget me. And I remember when You're we were never wa- going to forget Paul Snyder. Yeah. And I, when we were watching the movie, I screamed out at the thing. Yeah. Well, if Bob Fosse has his way, you're never going to forget Paul Snyder. And then a guacamole gun to the head. And then it's a guacamole gun to the head. Fosse's final image, his final thesis, actually before that weird nonsensical uh, quote that's given, that's almost meaningless. Uh-huh. That final, I can't even remember what it was. Just some quote by Dorothy Stratton saying nothing. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It was as nothing as the rest. Just of, another inanity. It's like tagged on as if to try to like, you know, lift what was an otherwise dour thesis, which was, if you'll remember the shot, an over-the-head shot in the room, a Scorsese-like over-the-head. Yeah, yeah. Scorsese would have had that camera moving, mm-hmm. but yeah. Fosse does an over-the-head shot. Now, the shot has got three components to it. One is Dorothy Stratton on the left, her head blown off. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one is on the lower right, and she's actually laying vertically. On the lower right is Paul Snyder. Uh, all, they're both naked. Uh, his head blown mm-hmm. partly off. And above him is a piece of the bed, the white sheets of the bed splattered yeah. with blood. Okay, so the visual information that's given in that shot as I read the, the film is Dorothy is standing. One could even say free to ascend. Mm -hmm. Paul Snyder is horizontal, vertical, laying down, Mm -hmm. literally with the the, the film frame resting on top of him, stopping his ability to ascend or even stand up. It's taking up that much of the frame. That sheet that's splattered with blood is a perfect mirror of her very first legit photo shoot Mm -hmm. or, or interview. Is it an interview or a photo shoot where she's in front of 
uh, a kind of white. Uh, oh, the graffiti thing? Yeah, the graffiti, the graffiti thing with the red graffiti the, of yeah, words uh, all in the background. Yeah, Pauline Kael makes that point in yeah, her review. Exactly. In her review, she brings it up. And so it's it's recalling that. And so Fosse kind of, visually at least for me, is kind of showing a, one character ascends out of this, the other one held down forever, literally by the very media that was destined, you know, to one way or the other, whether in reality or just metaphorically. No, it has a no, it, splattering her all no, over. No, it, lo- it looks like a mimic. It looks like a mimicry of a religious painting. Yeah, it's almost it's lit up like Caravaggio or something. Yeah, yeah. It's like a but with uh, it, it, like uh, like a, a mimicking of a religious painting, but with an opposite agenda to pull the characters apart as opposed to bringing them together. Right, exactly. Hey, Quentin, let's, uh, let's bring Gala in at this time and see what, uh, what she thought of the movie. Gala, were you able to see Star 80? Yes, I was able to see Star 80. I watched it actually on Amazon. I rented it. I watched it with my mom. It was one of my mom mm-hmm. movies. So Quentin said something at the very beginning of this episode that I think is an important thing to reiterate. Dorothy Stratton is a real person. This happened to her. Not what happened in the movie happened to her, but she was murdered. And whatever happened in the movie, that's the movie version. Mm-hmm. We don't know what happened between them in the last minutes of her life. We don't know exactly what was said. We don't know if he held the gun to his head and said, oh, they're never going to forget me. Yeah, yeah, all we have is the all various accounts have, and the autopsy. Maybe. Yeah, the various accounts and the autopsy. Which know the results. Which know the results. But we don't know what happened. So this is fictionalized. It's a movie. And yeah, we have the Playboy sitting in front of us. I've never seen a Playboy in person. I'm going to be honest. I've never seen a Playboy. I've never held a Playboy. You've never seen a magazine in person. <laughs> that's, not, that's not, no, that's I'm not kidding. true. I'm kidding. That's not that's true. only a little bit not true. <laughs> it's only a little bit. I, I'm a girl. I read magazines. You don't even know how to know. fold newspapers. <laughs> I was having this discussion with Roger and Quentin last night about newspapers saying that I got a newspaper. My mom was trying to teach me. This is how you fold a newspaper so you can read any page at any time. And stuff I'm, it in your pocket I was and like, pick it up later and unfold it in a different way. You can What? But anyway, uh, I have a good laugh at you looking at a Thomas guide. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what a Thomas guide is? It's, it's a, a map. map in a book. It's a map. Yeah. I know what a map is, you guys. Don't worry. No, I know you know what a map is, but you know what a Thomas it's guide is. Everybody a, had a Thomas guide I, in their car. It's not a Google it? map. It's yeah. a, when I was younger, actually, my dad had a Thomas guide in the car, and I actually used to read the Thomas guide. Yeah, I was a big, you, I mean, you know me. I, I kept Thomas alive for as long as possible. I, I enjoyed the movie. Eric Roberts steals the show. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt about that. Like well, he has he, no competition. Yeah, he has no competition. <laughs> well, Cliff Robertson's really good. I do like Cliff, look. I do like Cliff Robertson. He walks. And, a, he walks a balance. But you Cliff know what, Robertson, and, and I and I've grown to like Cliff Robertson. Yeah. I always thought he was innocuous in it, but now He's, I, I I can't imagine anyone else playing Hefner. Now I see the the subtle critique yeah. that's that's going on. And uh, uh, yeah, he's piece. literally doing a quiet critique. You're it's right. Actually, it's it's actually a funny lacerating performance, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. but quietly, yeah. like a, in a whisper. Yeah, it's a lacerating whisper. It's a good performance, but Eric Roberts still steals the show. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. I think he's doing an amazing job. He falls into the character. He is so charismatic in this role that you could believe that he really is a hustler that is moving his way and is using people and objects and whatever he can to get to where he wants to go, which is Hollywood. Well, let me ask you a question, though, okay? Uh, Did you feel what I felt as far as like about midway in the movie by the time he gets to Los Angeles that the performance starts becoming one note or the movie itself becomes one note? You know, 
I did feel like towards the end, it kind of got a little repetitive, but I think that's aided by the fact of how they do the editing mm-hmm. and how you kind of already know the madness he's going to descend to in the beginning. You mm-hmm. know that he's going to- It's like a train wreck. It's a train wreck. Watch. And you yeah, know, know it's going to crash. You know the train's mm-hmm. going to crash, but you're watching it knowing it's going to crash. Now, the scene with him and his roommate in the bathroom mm-hmm. where he's going on and on and on about Dorothy Stratton and like all mm-hmm. this stuff and his roommate's just trying to tell him like, bro, chill. The doctor. Like, take, the, a chill the take a chill pill. Plastic surgeon. Look at this photo. Look at this photo. Yeah. yeah. Take a chill pill. Like- you need to relax. Like, if you love her, let her go. Mm-hmm. Sort of thing. I think that scene, yeah, Eric Roberts' character is getting annoying, but I think that's the whole point of his character. No, I think so, too. I think it's. I think he's supposed to be annoying. I think he's supposed to be, because that is the point where we're supposed to start saying, we don't identify with you anymore. We don't like you anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the thing also is, is that at the beginning of the movie, when people are being interviewed about Eric Roberts' character, mm-hmm. they say, oh, like, one of his superpowers is that he never forgets a name, mm-hmm. and he uses it to his advantage. But when he eventually gets to Hollywood and he's in front of Hefner and all the other people, remembering their names and knowing them is not his superpower. It, it actually on fails on him. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the moment. That you know, I, I actually really like that scene. I, I, I kind of question that, though. I still really like the scene. You mean the scene where he's well, like. Where he quotes Hefner. That's the point that they make that like repelled Hefner. I actually thought he pulled it off. I actually, I don't, I, I wouldn't. Well, I wouldn't see. We all have. You and I were like young guys coming into Hollywood, mm-hmm. filled with all sorts of information about the the various people we were meeting and everything. Okay, I'll give you an example about that. Like a trick I used to do, you know, in my first years in in Hollywood, where I'd meet this famous director, this famous actor, or something like that, is, and this was easy. This was easy as pie for me to do. Easy. I would immediately think back to their filmography, and pick the most obscure movie I possibly could bring up that I actually generally had a fondness for. And I would bring that up to them. And no, okay, no, maybe I'm just more charming than Paul Snyder. All right, but uh, I'd say that, and they were always completely charmed. Like, oh, wow. And so, uh, and it led up to this one time I was at a big event and I'm introduced to Candace Bergen. And she had just been married to Louis Malle, and Louis Malle had passed away. And she had heard the whole story about the connection between Au Revoir, Les Enfants, and the titling of Reservoir Dogs. And so I'm introduced to her, and she was very, very nice to me. And she goes, well, you know, uh, uh, my late husband, Louis Malle, was a tremendous fan of yours. He thought you were a very talented young filmmaker. And when he heard that there was a connection between the titling of your movie and his movie, the fact that there was a connection just, you know, uh, it gave him great pleasure. And I just wanted to pass that on to you. I go, oh, thank you very much. And then I go, you know, you know what movie of yours that you did that I've always really, really liked your performance? Oh, really? What, what, what movie? And I go, Eleven Harrow House. Again, a movie that from the mid 70s that or early, early 70s that no one would bring up. It's, she's very, very funny in it. Her and Charles Grodin, it's a, a caper film. And her response was she took a breath and then she goes, Everything they say about you is true. <laughs> <laughs> is Lauren Harehouse the jewel thief movie? Yeah, 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 uh-huh. yeah, yeah. I've yeah, yeah. seen that. That's really <laughs> random. With the, cock, with the cockroach? Yeah, with the cockroach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah with Char- <laughs> Charles Grodin. Yeah, yeah, it's a good. Yeah, playing I've actually a, seen that. That's really a super... random. It's really, it's, it's, a, it's a good movie. <laughs> that's, that's a fun film. movie. Yeah, and you're, you're wondering through the entire time, well, how is he going to use this cockroach in this robbery? And then when you see how he uses it, oh, yeah. well, that's pretty clever. Yeah. <laughs> so, Quentin, uh, okay, I'm just going to like, Throw it out there. Uh-huh. I've had my Paul Snyder moments. Mm-hmm. I um, 
at the, I think it was the Academy Luncheon mm-hmm. or something like that. Like before the Academy Awards, there's this big luncheon and everybody who's nominated is there and you're at a mm-hmm. table with like, in my case, there was a bunch of sound designer guys and mm-hmm. they were so jaded. They're like, oh, this is my 12th time being here. I've yeah. got six Academy Awards already. <laughs> You'll get used to it. <laughs> and I'm like all like, wow, wow, here I am. Whoa, yeah, yeah. yeah this is so exciting. And I go over and you're talking to a, a small group of people and I go over like I would. And, yeah. And we start, I start talking and Tom Hanks is there. Mm-hmm. And I see Tom Hanks and I'm like, hey, he knows you're alone. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and Tom Hanks treated me <laughs> like Hef did to Paul Snyder. He looked at me like, like I brought up his greatest shame. <laughs> and what I was doing was like, man... I love you, Tom Hanks. I even love He Knows You're Alone. <laughs> he didn't take it that way. He looked at me and kind of sneered at me. So later on, we were at like another luncheon. And then you brought up his Love Boat episode? No. <laughs> <laughs> Mazes and monsters, dude. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking radical. No, but like, you know, cut to I, I'm we're uh, I'm at like uh, some other luncheon, Miramax lunch or mm-hmm. of some kind, and uh, there's a whole bunch of tables. And there's journalists there, and you're there, and Martin Landau mm-hmm. is there with his wife Gretchen. And like everybody is. Yeah, all the people nominated around. All that time, the people yeah. are around there. Everyone's and there's this there. table, and I'm at one Miramax table, and you're seated at another. Like everything's spread out. No one sat at my table. Everybody moved to that other table. Mm-hmm. And I felt in that, I'm just being honest yeah, with yeah. you. I felt like fucking Paul Snyder mm-hmm. in that moment. Now, I'm not going to take a shotgun and blow you away and, yeah. <laughs> before I kill myself. <laughs> Wait till they get a load of me. But They'll never forget but, Raver, I, <laughs> but I had a dose of what Paul Snyder probably felt like, yeah. uh, how he was treated by uh, Hugh Hefner, which was, you're not part of the equation. No, that's fair. I guess all I'm saying is that Bob Fosse is looking at that. Mm-hmm. that he's identifying with that. It, there's a great moment in Showgirls mm-hmm. when Robert Davi mm-hmm. meets with, I think her name is Nomi or mm-hmm. Noni or something like that. Mm-hmm. He meets with her after she's like left his sleazy little strip club. Mm-hmm. And she's now like at the Showgirls thing. Yeah, it's yeah. like the dream place to work for. He's in awe of, the, of where she is at this point, mm-hmm. Robert Davi's character. And he's, he looks at her and he's like, Congratulations, you did it. It must be really great not having people like sleazy guys hitting on you all the time anymore. Mm-hmm. But that's exactly what's happening to her. Yeah, yeah. She's just, still getting. It's just in a bigger venue. And it's a, in a bigger and venue, a, and in fact, those sleaze balls are the biggest lizards mm-hmm. possible. Mm-hmm. It's like Hugh Hefner calling uh, the greatest pimp of all time, mm-hmm. calling somebody else a pimp. Mm-hmm. That's an indictment by Fosse. One last thing I want to bring up is the ending of the movie, because mm-hmm. we touched on it. Quentin, you, you're you right. This is kind of the first time that we're seeing the movie through Dorothy Stratton's eyes. Mm-hmm. I love this scene where they're sitting together, facing each other in the director's chair with her big photo blown up behind her. I love it. I find it... It, 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 it takes your breath away. The shot it, is so dynamic, it takes yeah. your breath away. You also know what's going to happen. Like I mean, you yeah. know that she's going to die, but you also know that he's not going to get her back. Which mm-hmm. just shows how overwhelmed they are by the false imagery of her, mm-hmm. the idolatry of her. Yeah, because in those moments, she is just that girl behind the Dairy Queen counter, mm-hmm. and he is just that guy that picked up on her. And behind them, of course, is what she has become. And... It's a really touching moment when he finally realizes I'm not going to get her back. Mm-hmm. 
Now, not even on a business level. Not even on a business level. He's being frozen out, especially on the business level. Yeah, Yeah. it's over. The train has moved on. It's gone. Mm -hmm. He's not getting on. His ticket is void. But the ending is kind of weird in the room with them, like when she's undressing and she like. Yeah, presents. That's what I said. Which is all fiction based. Which is I mean, all, or, 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 um, well, that's, that's I, I the make, assumption that Fossey is making of what happens in those moments because behind those closers, we only know mm-hmm. what the coroner can tell us. I, look, and it's, it, it's his job to figure it out. All right. Um, I don't think it's just the fact that she offers himself. It's the fact that she offers himself after three different scary yes. violent encounters. Yes. That's yeah. my problem. And, Where he's snapped. Not no, the, and not, I have to agree. I have mm-hmm. to agree because this is the moment where he's supposed to say, no matter how much you like Eric Roberts as Paul Snyder throughout this film, mm-hmm. he still did a terrible thing to her mm-hmm. and she is still the victim in this situation. Mm-hmm. And somehow in this last few minutes together, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. You don't still. No, the rubber band broke. It's just, it does it not It held a work. really long time, it does but not he pressed it too her. far. It does not service Dorothy Stratton mm-hmm. at all in this final moment. Or, or the story, or even that scene as a third act. No, I don't think. And then- and then to come in with the bizarro quote of Dorothy Stratton where she's giving an interview and it's just nothing. It's like blah. It's part, she might as well just be saying blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And it, <laughs> the weirdest part to me about how the movie ends is that they have this really, I, I actually think it's a really interesting editing technique where they're giving kind of like a mockumentary style interviews mm-hmm. with all these people. He did that also in, in Lenny. That's sort yeah. of his thing. And I, I like, I, I really like it. I, I like but it. then it doesn't go anywhere in the end. And you're left with this really vacant discussion by Dorothy Stratton's character. Well, his last thing, his last comment he's making before he has the innocuous comment is what Roger mentioned, where all the other characters in the story that have become important, you see what they were doing at that given moment while she was being murdered in, in the Hollywood apartment. They're all obsessed in their own ways with imagery. But also life goes on. Yeah, life goes on mm-hmm. for sure. And why not just end it there? I don't know why they tacked on this thing with Dorothy Stratton in the end, giving this speech that goes nowhere. Well, I think, again, I think it's part of, it's it's the same hypocrisy of the movie that puts her picture on the cover and gives her top billing when she, uh, uh, when it's obviously the Eric Roberts story is they don't want to end the movie with Snyder. They want to give lip service to the fact that they're telling the Stratton story so they give her the last word. It, but they don't even realize how innocuous the last word is. Yeah. They think they're doing her a favor and they're not. Yeah, and I would have liked- but, but they're they're completely oblivious to the fact that they're not doing her a favor. Yeah, and I would have liked this film a lot better if they had just kind of owned up to the fact, okay, yeah, it's the Paul Snyder story. He says it in the interview that you read yeah. earlier. And just go with it. Don't give any lip service of like, oh, like we're going to like end it on Dorothy Stratton. You're not giving her any service during the movie. So don't half-ass it at the end. But one of the things well, it's that just, makes- it's, Again, it's the trappings. The, they have no intention of it's doing that, of, but they're, yeah. they're, it's, 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 their, it's their cover. Yes. It's their cover. Well, one of the things that makes the movie compelling even today is that hypocrisy. That is true. Yeah. No, 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 that, that is true. It's one of the reasons why we're doing this episode and we're only talking about Star 80 and not just about, oh, we like this or yeah. we like that. A friend of mine- Lynn Hirschberg is a, a magazine journalist and um, her whole thing is when it comes to interviewing people, she doesn't care if they're good or bad. 
she cares that they're interesting. She's yeah. like an attorney that That's way. the only <laughs> thing that being an interesting person is the most important thing in life. That's, yeah. a, Kubrick, right. that's a Kubrick and thing. I, yeah. Doesn't have also, to make sense. Yeah, and Roger yeah. always so passed that on to me. Like with female characters, to me, I don't care about strong female characters. Mm-hmm. I want interesting female right. characters. That's what I want. I want interesting characters yeah, in general. Interesting is strong. One of the most powerful moments I had with an audience sitting in a movie theater in the 80s was seeing They All Laughed. And I, I loved that movie so much. That was my introduction to you was basically that guy who loves They All Laugh. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, you know, in that movie, I'm watching a movie of a woman, Dorothy Stratton, directed by a, a director who loves her. The dire- you know, a director literally, and there's other examples of this in cinema, shooting the lead actress through a lens of love. He loves her and he wants us in the audience to fall in love with her. And in the case of me, it worked. I had a crush on Dorothy Stratton by the end of They All Laugh that I hadn't had since I was a a child. Yeah. The way you're a child, a movie's over and all of a sudden you think you're in love with Goldie Hawn. um, But it was a disturbing feeling because it was about a woman who was already brutally murdered by the time I'm having that feeling. But I was definitely entranced. But there is this, when the movie opened initially- in Los Angeles, it played at one theater, it played at the Lemley Music Hall. And uh, back when it was just a one cinema. And to this day, the Lemley Music Hall is always the theater that showed They All Laughed. Mm-hmm. And it showed it, you know, exclusively for a, at least a, um, a month. And it got such good reviews in Los Angeles that uh, the theater was pretty much sold out almost every night, especially on the weekends. So I saw it three different times at the Lemley Music Hall during its initial engagement. And the way... Bogdanovich ends the movie as a real charming kind of way where you see the last little wrap-ups of whatever the vignettes have been for all the different cast of characters. And you see the their last little wrap-up of their little story as this as a calling camp song plays, and you see their credits uh, flashed under their name as you kind of see them wrap up their little story. Yeah, a little curtain call type thing. Yeah. And then uh the one with Dorothy Stratton is obviously that her and John Ritter have 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 gotten together, and John Ritter is made to look as much like Peter Bogdanovich as humanly possible. Yeah, he's got the glasses, the yeah. oversized glasses. And um, after watching the entire movie, and I might even get choked up saying about it now, after watching the entire movie, when they cut to a close up of Dorothy Stratton's face, and her name appears, I'm getting teary eyed saying this, and her name appears under her face. The feeling of loss in that cinema from everybody sitting shoulder to shoulder in that cinema was overwhelming. Yeah. We were hit with the loss as if we were hit by water from a wave. You felt everybody in the, there was a a collective sigh in the cinema about this woman that we've all have been enchanted by. And now we've all come back down to earth and we realize that she is no more. And I saw it three different times at the cinema and I had the exact, exact same feeling from everybody in the audience every time I saw it. And it was one of the most powerful moments that I had in a cinema during the 80s with an audience as far as cause and effect for what was on the screen and what we felt as a collective. Wow. Yeah. And boy, that also affected Bogdanovich throughout his life. I mm-hmm. mean, this became well, his case, identity. Well, basically. yeah, no, a case, a, case, a case could be made that the, the death of Dorothy Stratton 
pretty much ruined his life. And he, he was never able to recover. Wow. I have my problems with Star 80, but it is an interesting movie. And I enjoyed wrestling with the alligator. That is what I think. And I guess the, the alligator in this metaphor is Bob Fosse's intentions. Yeah. And, and, and actually it brings up to me, like, what are the responsibilities of a filmmaker, if any, other than to themselves, even when telling a biopic? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's one of those things. Normally I would agree with that. This one rubs me the wrong way. For sure. I, and with, but that's legit. With, yeah, it is legit. Yeah, with, I've never said the word offense. I don't use that. I say obscene. Yeah. That's different. Mm-hmm. Who gives a fuck if I'm offended? Anybody can decide to be offended about something. I find it obscene. There's a difference. Yeah. <laughs> now, if you guys are all interested after this conversation in watching Star 80, it is available pretty much everywhere to rent, including Amazon. We both have our both, we our, both have yes, our video boxes. We both have our video boxes. Mine We're gonna leave just, them alone. They can kiss. <laughs> <laughs> Mine just came in there, the mail. There's no Paul Snyder on the cover of either of these, so it's gonna be uh, Merle Hemingway like, kissing yeah. herself. My hot girl on girl action on our video cassettes. <laughs> Mine came in the mail today. It I got it from eBay for eleven forty nine. It is a Warner Home Video clamshell, just like Quentin's copy. Um, which, by the way, the video archives copy was originally purchased for $69.99. That makes sense. And that would have been an original purchase at that time in 80, 83. Yeah, for sure. Well, everybody, thank you so much. This has been a interesting episode. Hope you enjoyed us wrestling with Star 80 as much as we enjoyed wrestling. They're it. killing me. They're <laughs> killing me and they're attacking me. <laughs> it's a weird thing to say when you're having sex. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Bye-bye. See ya. Bye, everyone. The Video Archives podcast is hosted by Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery and produced by Josh Richman and Gala Avery. Our engineer is Devin Torrey Bryant, and our executive producers are Colin Anderson and Natalie Muellen. Find out more about the show by heading to videoarchivespodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Video Archives and on Instagram at Video Archives Pod. Despite me sharing the same last name with this charity, I don't have any affiliation with it, besides the fact that the issue is very near and dear to my heart. Did you know that in the United States, 2.7 million children currently have a parent in prison, and it's estimated that 10 million children have experienced parental incarceration at some point in their lives. I was one of these kids, and as an adult, I am really grateful to be able to give back to Project Avery. Their mission is to build leadership from within by supporting community through programs such as mentoring and outdoor education, and also to remove the stigma surrounding having a parent that's incarcerated. You don't have to feel alone. If you know a kid who could use these resources or would like to donate money or time to the charity, please go to Project Avery, that's A-V-A-R-Y dot org, to check out what this amazing charity is all about. Again, that's projectavery.org. Thank you guys from the bottom of my heart. Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic 
and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) Thank you.